Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. Crowds of people, some of them not wearing masks, up against the athletes. What we know is that outdoor transmission is exceptionally rare compared to indoor. One of the things to improve trust in cycling would be give people the power data. Start with is that there's, there's actually a very poor correlation between power output and finishing position in a sprint. So if you like Ross and I, you've been watching the last 10 days of the uh, 2020 Tour de France. Um, we are talking to you on the first Monday rest day of the 2020 event. And uh, maybe by the time you listen to this, which will probably be on the Tuesday, um, things would have changed. But uh, we're not going to try and preempt anything in this podcast. We're just trying to give you some insight into what we've seen in 2020. And it has been a, a very surprising tour. I think for those of you that love cycling, uh, you will have enjoyed some of the racing out there. I certainly have. And uh, it has been a tour where normally what we see in a Tour de France is we see lots of fat stages in the first week and then it kind of goes into the mountains. Whereas this year, we've seen lots of hills in the first week and lots of excitement. But before we get on to that, we do have to pay a very special big thank you to our patrons on Patreon. And uh, a couple of our um, new patrons have uh, donated some money to our worthy cause, keeping us alive here and making a little bit of money to make it worth our while. Um, so I'm going to ask Ross just to uh, give some of the names of our new patrons on, our patrons on Patreon. Thanks, Mike. So we have four since the last podcast. The last podcast, by the way, was supplements. That's right. If you missed it, have Ooh, a listen to that. Juicy yeah. one. We'll save you the money on supplements so that you can donate to us on Patreon. <laughs> Jokes. Uh, four people to welcome into our Science of Sport family. Harry Monroe has come in at the Olympic athlete level. Thanks Lovely. very much, Harry. Thanks, Harry. Then two Olympic champions this week. They are Colin Thompson and Patricia Holborn. So thanks very much to you. That's the middle level. That's our Olympic champion. And then we have an Olympic legend who we are crowning this week. That person is Chris Gaskin, who's gone in at the top level of donations. So thanks very much to all four of you and a particular thanks to Chris Gaskin, who is the latest in our family of Olympic legends. And as Mike says, uh, you go onto patron.com, uh, look for the science of sport. That's where you can donate to keep us going. I mean, we're going to go anyway. I always say that. It's not like we're <laughs> holding ourselves to ransom or hostage here. We go anyway. And if you're grateful and feel the need or the inclination to donate, then, then we are very grateful for you. For if you those. like so what we do, we'd like to see if you, you can donate us some money, that's basically what we're asking, quite right. So a big thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon because they certainly guys have um, been really enthusiastic over the last couple of months and uh, we really do appreciate uh, your financial contributions. But let's get on to the meat of what we're talking about today. And that is the 2020 Tour de France. And uh, Ross, I will tell you that I have really enjoyed this first week, probably more than I've enjoyed the first week of the Tour de France ever, purely because we've seen a lot of climbing, we've seen some big stages, almost queen-like stages. And um, we've seen some, some surprises. We've seen some amazing performances from some outsiders. And we've also seen some performances from the, from the well-known riders, but also 
almost a slight changing of the guard between the old the old Sky team, which is now Ineos, Bombardiers, or whatever. Grenadiers. Looking at the scenery there, are you, Mike? I can't keep up to date with all the names <laughs> of the teams. But, uh, of course, Yuma Visma, the team that everybody's watching at the moment. But yeah, you can't avoid them. You can't avoid them, the yellow, mm. the the, budge, the, uh, the canaries of the uh, of the um, Tour de France. But your assessment, I mean, how, how have you seen this first week of the Tour? I'm really enjoying what it's building to become. Um, yeah. I don't want to downplay what's happened in week one. But based on what we've seen in the last two days where they finally did some mountains, um, well, not finally, but but big, big proper mountains in the Pyrenees, the, it seems to me that we're going to get one-on-one battles when we get to the big mountains, you know, because the, the tempo of the race, the way that it's been set up is, yes, Jumbo has been dominant up to the last stage of the climb, but once those attacks are coming, they're, they're fragmenting pretty quickly. And I'm quite looking forward to seeing how that plays out. We've... We've seen the emergence of some unbelievable young guys. Uh, Pogacar from Slovenia seems like the guy to watch in the next phase of the mountains. Tadej Pogacar, yeah. Having lost time in the wind, which was maybe the surprise um, on Thursday. And he was the big guy that everybody said last year was going to be the new guy to watch in 2020. And he, well, has he was 20. turned I mean, out was, to be that, wasn't he? Was he was 20 years old and he got a podium in the Vuelta. Yeah, and I, mean, I remember we interviewed... Uh, Adrian Rutana, who's a team doctor with that t- with his team, and he said, "You've got to watch this guy. He's an yeah. unbelievable young talent." And at 21, yesterday's stage win was the youngest stage winner since the infamous Armstrong in 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, he set records on both those climbs. We'll get to that. So he certainly is like the form guy. But there's two weeks to go, and the prevailing wisdom has always been that the young guys don't have it in them to go the three weeks. So that'll be. And so yeah. there's a lot of interesting things to watch. Roglic has been dominant all season. Does he have it in him to stay there for two more weeks, or is he going to fall off that peak? Mm. Bernal was very good, then didn't look as flashy in the Dauphiné. There was talk of a back problem. He pulled out. Yesterday, he started to look, actually, maybe he's coming right. Maybe he'll be better in the third week of the tour than he was now. There's Quintana, who looked great on Saturday and not so good yesterday. Mm. Lander finally looked like he was coming into the role of a GC, a team a yeah. team leader on the GC race. Um, so you have all these little subplots, these individuals who... So I, I'm, I'm quite excited by what's going to come. I hope we get there, though. Because the big, <laughs> the big thing is, by the time you all listen to this... Some of these teams might have been sent home because nobody knows (laughs) what the COVID testing is going to reveal. I mean, as we sit here talking about it, they are testing riders and where they get positive tests, they will retest them because there's a lot of fear of false positives. And where teams have got two staff or riders positive, they are apparently going to be sent home. Now, I'm quite optimistic that that's not going to happen, but it could and then, and then all our hopes for the next two weeks are gone. Well, you say you're you're optimistic about that, but one of the things that's been a theme on Twitter is the crowds that have been up on the climbs that the riders been riding through. And although most, I would say, eighty percent of the people on those mountains are probably wearing masks, we know that masks don't necessarily, you know, they don't totally stop it. But there's a lot of people that aren't wearing masks, and I must admit, I look at those riders going up some of those climbs over this last weekend, and it it's it makes me nervous to see so many people like the Tour de France of old, but in the middle of a pandemic, there's all these images on Twitter where people are saying what pandemic and there's all these crowds of people, some of them not wearing masks up against the athletes, so close to them shouting into their faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a real risk that a pandemic could spread 
by a bunch of people shouting at cyclists going up a climb? There's a risk. I'd hate to guess what size it is. Um, what we know is that outdoor transmission is exceptionally rare compared to indoor. Yeah. So in China, for instance, there were 319 outbreaks or clusters. One of them was an outdoor event. 318 were indoors. In Japan, for instance, they had assessed that the risk of an outdoor transmission was 5% that of an indoor one. So when you are outside, the risk is so much lower that it yeah. almost becomes, in some instances, negligible. Then, then we know from these epidemiolo epidemiological tracing studies that you need a fair amount of exposure or a fairly high exposure. Now, I, I can't see that happening when a cyclist whizzes by a guy at mm. 20k an hour and the exposure is literally half a second, less even. Yeah. So for Even that, if he's shouting into his face without a mask on. So, so then th that's the only circumstance is like direct, not direct face-to-face, -face, but really close face-to-face -face contact, shouting at him. There go those water droplets. The spittle goes from the fan's mm. mouth onto the cyclist. Mm. He has to not be wearing a mask. I suppose even if he is, some could still get through. But it just seems the probability of that transmission is exceptionally low. And I'm not condoning what we saw, especially on the Parasort on Saturday. It was yeah. crazy dense. Crazy. And we know that we should be encouraging outdoor, but also not massive groups and high yeah. density. And, and they failed on two, two of those three counts. So it would have been better to see fewer fans or spread them out over twice the distance. But I'm still not... I'm, I'm, I'm still holding on to a degree of optimism that the context in which the race is moving is, is much less likely to cause a transmission than when they're at the start and the finish and you have people potentially interacting yeah. for five, ten minutes at a time within a space of one meter indoors in the hotels, in the, uh, in the press. Well, they don't have press rooms. That's one of the safety things they've done. Mm. I think that the risk is going to be much higher there than on the road. Yeah. So, yes, it's not a great look. It's a funny look because you've got these guys coming up to the podium and there's no ceremony now. They just sort of stand there, wave, and mm. off they go. They've got their masks on. That's an incredibly low-risk situation also. It's mm. also outdoor. Yet they've taken all the precautions and then on the bike, no precautions at all it looks like. So I get why there's consternation mm. and anger and, and, and concern. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that it's going to be a fa false concern for now, I hope. I hope. So, I mean, what? So, the other thing, sorry, the other thing. Yeah, the is, hyper on uh, Twitter, but essentially, what you're saying yeah. is be realistic. There's yeah. not, no chance, but yeah. the, it, it, it isn't as bad as it looks sometimes. And the other thing is that symptomatic spread is much more common than asymptomatic. So, if a person's not showing those symptoms, they're much less likely to give the virus or the disease to someone else. Now, what's the probability that a guy who's gone up on those mountains and spent the day there is mm. symptomatic? It's. I don't think that symptomatic people are really going to be in high numbers on those climbs. I'm again, maybe I'm looking for reasons to stay optimistic, but <laughs> I, I think that there is a COVID nineteen induced polarization here of opinions. I'm hopeful that the tour will have avoided the worst of it from the fans. The, I still think the big concern is what happens between six p.m. and eleven a.m. the next day. That for me is a bigger concern than what happens uh, on the road. So perhaps the biggest concern for the riders is the overwhelming smell of garlic more than anything else up in those and French mountains. And whiskey. Apparently, <laughs> whiskey. One of, I think it was one of the movie star guys said I could smell whiskey on the guy because they go up there and they're drinking and they're yeah, – because yeah. you've got to get up those climbs early. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? You just sit there <laughs> drinking and – Eating. Yeah, preparing for the – Eating garlic bread and drinking 15 wine. 15 seconds of fame you'll get on television. So. 
it does drive me nuts. I mean, it's a complete aside, but I, I think that one of the things that frustrates me so much about cycling commentators on television is when they try and tell the people on the side of the road, please do not do this, and all these spectators doing these crazy things on the road. But it is so much part of cycling. And yes, there's a part of you that goes, oh, I just hope this guy gets out the way. But it, that is what it's about, and it is almost part of the sport. And I never really understand why the cycling commentators get their knickers in or not about it, because it's like, so what? They're over-enthusiastic, admittedly, maybe one or, once or twice in the history of the Tour de France, a, a, a spectator's taken out a rider, but it doesn't happen as often as you think, really, does it? No, no, but I suppose once, if, it, if it's yeah, the, fair enough. you know, like the photographer that steps out and gets cleaned up or, yeah. or a guy, yeah. I mean, it, we've seen races, stages certainly influenced and decided by it. So you don't want it to happen, mm. but yeah, I, I just, I get right, like right now, there are concerns over and above fans interfering with the race. I mean, a fan yeah. could give a disease or virus to someone who then gives it to three other people who give it to three other people. And now you've got yeah. actually, a, it affects the integrity of the whole event. And by this time tomorrow, we'll know yeah. <laughs> what's happened. And I'm really hopeful oh. that that's not the case because yeah. it has been a, has been an exciting tour. And I think it's quite an open tour, notwithstanding the dominance of one team. But mm. by the time you get to the last four or five K on a climb, that, that dominance has also been gone in the last few days. So mm. I, I'm hopeful and looking forward to the next two weeks. I must say, I, when it comes to tr tragedy, um, and I don't mean, maybe I'm overstating the fact on this one, but Mark Hershey yesterday um, losing that stage. And it was such a wonderful moment. I, he, he got away with 90 kilometers to go, the Swiss rider. The TV guys were going nuts about this guy. Anybody that was watching, even if you weren't a cyclist and you watched a bit of that, here's this lone leader. Nobody else was attacking. It was a furious pace early on. Everybody tried to attack. Hershey gets away on the climb. Then he gets caught, what, three kilometers from the finish by the lead bunch, including Roglic and Pogacar. And then cleverly, and the commentators picked up this quite quickly, of course, he knows that he's got a reasonable sprint in him. He sits up. He waits for those guys to come past because they're chasing GC time. He gets on the back and he thinks, he could win this still, man. It would be unbelievable. And Pogacar beats him. And what it showed me a little bit, I know Pogacar was obviously incentivized by the fact that he got some bonus seconds as the winner, but it shows you a guy like Tadej Pogacar is a, is a proper racer. I mean, he is a guy. He's not going to hang back on sentiment. He's not going to hang back on, oh, maybe we should just, you know, give Hershey this. There is, it doesn't matter. It's a brutal world. Hershey buried himself and was, you know, 10 metres from away from winning probably the stage of the turn, he might never get that close again in his entire career. Well, I think he will because he, well, seems, true, he yes. seems to be he – doesn't, He doesn't seem like the guy who the peloton let escape and that was his moment. He seems like a guy who will work his way into similar situations mm -hmm. in future. Um, it would be – it would be. I mean, if Pogacar had broken clear of that uh, group on the ascent and caught him on the descent and it was just the two of them, he would have let him win, I think. Yeah. True. Although, although well, he the, needs that the, 10 seconds, you With see. the time bonus, yeah. maybe not, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. like, he would have been assured of at least finishing ahead of Roglic. Yeah. If he'd been ahead. So yeah. so the time bonuses may have cost Hershey there a little bit. I mean, yeah. four guys catching a guy are never going to let – or four aren't going to let him beat them. No. One guy might have. You've seen yeah. that in the past. There's no sentiment. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. He, he, yeah, with the time bonuses, especially – one thing that's interesting to speculate coming back to the COVID thing is – if, if the race is in some jeopardy, and I think it's fairly low probability that the race yeah. ends today, uh, 
those 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 two stages on the weekend could have been the decisive stages in the race. You needed to be in yellow by Sunday night. And Do you think Roglic knew that? Do you think the I, teams thought, well, if it ends on Monday, I don't. Are they going to declare him a winner? I, I don't know. I, I've <laughs> I've listened to one or two podcasts on the tour, and they're sort of split over it. Will the yeah. teams plan their race? I mean, they're riding into a rest day anyway, so you can afford to go maybe all out Saturday, Sunday. Mm. Um, so that might not give you an indication. But I, I was listening to the um, the Move podcast. Have you listened to that, by the way? Yes. I'm interested in your yes. thoughts on it. So I love it. What, what do you think of it? Well, Lance. Yeah. I love it. I think, you know, I mean, as much as I'll probably be ridiculed by the greater universe about my love for Lance Armstrong, but I'm one of, I'm in the school of thought that, you know, Lance was part of a system and he was the, the full guy. He wasn't a good guy, but he was certainly the full guy. But he does a great podcast and I think he adds insight that I think is quite interesting to listen to. I've, yeah, so I've listened to a couple of them and the first thing I'll say is like they're 30 minutes long and yeah. 10 minutes of it's adverts. Yeah, that is sad. And it's like, I remember at the <laughs> start. more money than we are there. Well, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Patreon. We need a sponsor. We won't spend 30% of our podcasts selling you a, a ring that tells you how well you sleep. Because literally no. the first six minutes of the podcast is Lance telling us how he slept really well. Yeah. And, he, and he credits this um, aura ring that they wear or something as if that's yeah. putting him to yeah. sleep. I mean, it's... Anyway, so it's we're not we're not ever so, gonna do that. We so promise the, that. You know, on the app you can skip forward thirty seconds at a time. I skip, I still, still, next one. Eventually, like ten pushes laid off. Okay, now we finally got to cycling. Yeah. What I do enjoy on that is I like King Cappy's views. Yeah. I think he has a very um measured and lucid way of explaining things, which is cool. And then when they speak to guys like Schleck and Braniel, I like the insights they get. Yeah. And anyway, the, the, it's just tangentially. The point was that they were speculating on whether teams would race the tour as though it was a nine-day race that then resumes on day eleven, <laughs> or would they would they just pretend that this wasn't a potential um, mm. banana skin on the rest day? And yeah. I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, the point was Hershey was Hershey was never going to get a gift, given yeah. that there were time bonuses on the line, and mm. especially with the big four yeah. <laughs> looming behind. I mean, Hershey but, was also involved in probably. If you talk about a, a sort of a local favourite, um, Julien Philippe's win, I think, on stage number two, um, when he beat Hershey in the sprint um, after ha- attacking on the final climb, was certainly, I think, one of the great moments in cycling because not only is Philippe sort of a god in, in in French cycling, but the way that he attacks, you know, he's he's got a contadoresque way of of riding a bike. He's not, you know, he's not looking like looking on his power meeting, he's going and climbing. He, he operates on passion. He attacks sometimes completely out, outrageously. But there's a panache about him that I absolutely love. And you you can't deny that he is great for cycling Juliana Philippe. And him winning that day I thought was a great moment. Yeah, and that one actually Hershey lost his wheel. He was he, he just I don't know if there's yeah. a lapse in concentration or if he was thinking about maybe Yates was going to do something and not Alaphilippe, but he just lost that wheel. And he actually, yeah. it's interesting because he actually finished faster than Alaphilippe. And mm. you might well look at that as a as a missed opportunity. I thought Alaphilippe spotted that. When you, you look at you the footage, I watched that. Alaphilippe looked around and as soon as he was slightly off the back of the wheel, he went and got that 10 meter gap. And it was, I think it was a bit of genius from Alaphilippe. I, I, I'm a fan. Could have been, could have been. <laughs> so, But anyway, Hershey, Hershey's had two let's call them near misses. And yeah. He's on a steep learning curve, but that you yeah. would be at that age in your first Grand Tour of any kind, never mind the Tour de France. So, And then Alaphilippe, 
Okay, so he wins yellow, then he loses yellow on a technicality. <laughs> and then he then he attacked on Saturday for about 20 seconds. And the moment he was caught, he just dropped it back into the into the group. I mean, he lost many minutes on that day. So he's had a weird tour, not not nearly like 2019 for him so far. Do you not think it's a bit like Alaphilippe? We're probably digressing slightly off the many subjects we're going to talk about today with Alaphilippe, though, that you when you attack, you know how your legs are going to feel with that maximal effort. And you go, oh, it's not happening today. I'm just going to bat out the back here and wait for another day. I mean, is that is there, a, is there some value in that? Yeah. I, given the way they ride the climb where the, it's jumbo on the front and they're setting that super high tempo, mm. and we'll get into the physiology of this in a moment, but mm. pretty much the top 20 to 30 guys in the race are all close to or above their critical power or their MLSS, whatever. Go back and listen to our two two podcasts back, I think it was, or three actually. Yep. We did a podcast called What the FTP, yep. and we explain these concepts. And we'll, we'll revisit them now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is pretty close to their CP. You know if you've got good legs at that Critical power. power, for those of you who don't know what that is. Yeah, or, or their MLSS is maximal lactate steady state. They're, they're close to their limit for a sustainable steady state effort you know if you've got good legs when you're at that power output Mm. so to to then go off the front and drop 700 watts for 15 seconds and then just you know drop anchor is is a little odd but that's like you say that's panache so we're going to talk i mean maybe this is the opportunity now to talk about some of the performances based on some of the stuff we looked at and ross and i have been sharing screenshots from strava of some of the athletes that we've been following and uh pogachar's performance over the last over this last week in particular the parasaur you know I, i wanted to ask you looking at the times of these guys I don't want to bring up the, the the bad old past of the Lance days, but how do the performances this year compare to the times that we saw in the Lance era? The thing is, you can't not bring up the bad old days. And it's not just the Lance years. It's because Lance inherited it from Pantani and Festina and uh, Reese and Ulrich and Veronk and all the guys before him, and they inherited it from someone before them. So you could you could it's dominoes and you can just go further and further back and you'll end up with mercs you'll end up in the very first one with guys who cheated by taking um what was it wine and strychnine to yes. dull the pain and simpson so you can't yeah that's simpson so you can't actually ignore it and when i watch it now and like let's do this discussion because it is important the the names are different but the patterns are the same dominant team Last 20 guys in the race, six of them are from one team. That's the situation as it's been since the turn of the century, except then it was Postal and it was being done for Lance. Then it became Sky and it was being done for Froome or Wiggins in in the one year before. Mm. Then now it's Yumbo and it's being done for Ogle. So the patterns are the same. It's very difficult to break the cynicism when when not not much has changed. And the guys in the cars are the guys who are on the bikes. So So why would you assume it to be different? Okay, now... In 2006, the biological passport gets introduced and there is documented changes in the performance of the teams. There are documented changes in the blood profiles of the teams where there were indications that the passport was at least forcing a change in behavior. And so the backstory to performance analysis for me is in 2009, a journalist by the name of David Walsh is in South Africa. You cycling listeners will know this name because he's the guy who has... Well, he did do a lot on Lance Armstrong's doping. Um, He was one of a few journalists who really went hard after Lance. 
And in 2009, he was here in Cape Town because the British and Irish Lions rugby team were here and he was covering that tour. And I walked with him up the mountain. We did a hike on the mountain. And on that hike, <laughs> never forget, he told me, you need to look at the power outputs of these guys and their performances. Because what Lance is doing, remember this was as Lance was announcing his comeback. Uh -huh. What Lance and his guys did when he was winning his tours was physiologically impossible. And if you analyze the power, you'll see it. You'll figure out that they're doping based on their performance. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interested. I'll yeah. buy it. Yeah. Let me look into this. <laughs> so, this is the red flag to a sports scientist. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was like, this is enticing. Can you spot a doper based on what's? Okay. Spoiler alert, no. Uh, okay, damn. Yeah, unfortunately. Okay. At some theoretical point, you can, because it becomes eye-poppingly mutant. Yeah. Okay. But let's, I'll tell you when that is. But what I then did was I got in touch with guys like Antoine Weyer, thought in the side of Dave Brailsford and Sky, and most cyclists now, because he's, he's an ultra cynic. He pretty much says all of it's mutant. Um, and he was calculating power outputs, and he was saying, mutant physiology if you were above 6.3 or something watts per kilogram, right? Yeah. Um, and I started doing the same thing. And coincidentally, what happened in the 2009 tour was Alberto Contador wins a stage up to a ski resort called Verbier. And Greg LeMond gets hold of Contador's time on that climb. And I'll explain to you exactly how he does this. He says, well, based on how fast Contador climbed and the power output he produced, he has to have had a VO2 max of 100 mils per kilogram per minute. Like, like that's a headline. And I remember it was the headline. <laughs> Le Monde, Contador VO2 max must be 100. Okay, this is interesting. So that following David Walsh telling me to look at the power output was kind of the... So VO2 max, just to give some context to what you're saying around 100, 100 is like maximum. So a, a good elite athlete would have a VO2 max of in this 80s. Probably. Yeah, that okay. would be exceptionally okay. high. Anything right. between 72 and 85 would right. class you as being one of the yeah. world-class endurance athletes. Because and if you had 100, there'd be something wrong with you. You'd, well, you'd be something wrong with your equipment if you were <laughs> measuring that. So if I, <laughs> if I was measuring a guy and I saw 100, I'd say, uh, yeah. we need to recalibrate the machine. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry to waste your time, sir. Okay. Right. So there are, I mean, cross-country skiers, because they're using arm and legs, they get unbelievably high VO2 maxes. So it has been measured. Mm. But in a, in a cyclist, it would be crazy high, you know, okay. especially a climber like Contador, who's, who's in theory also efficient. Because mm. the more efficient you are, the less oxygen you use. That's the definition. And the less oxygen you use, the lower your max is. Mm. So the combination of a very efficient rider and a high VO2 max, that's alien <laughs> or mutant. Right. Okay. So anyway, so I, I, I do an analysis of this Contador thing and I put on my website. It becomes quite a talking point. It was cool. It attracted a lot of uh, data guys, cycling anoreks. Um, it was really interesting, I thought, at the time. And so begins this process where every year thereafter, we looked at the performances in the Tour de France. And we said, right, what's the power output for how long? What's the implication of that? And the reason, just for listeners and you, the reason this works is because cycling performance is, is really a consequence of three things. It's how big is the engine? That's mm. VO2 max. How efficient is the engine? That's cycling efficiency. So how and, big the engine is basically the number of uh, cylinders in the engine. In other words, how big your lungs are and your blood capillaries. and Lungs and heart. Yeah. How well can that system do its job to right. get what's needed where it's needed? Okay. Oxygen and blood. So that's, that's exactly what it is. So that's VO2 max engine. Number two is the efficiency. So in other words, 
the more efficient you are, the higher, the, 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 the less energy you need at a sub-maximal speed. So it's, it's almost like a fuel economy in a car, if we're going to stick to the engine analogy. Okay? Yeah. And then the third thing is your engine's ability to run at a high level for a long time. And that in physiology is lactate threshold or threshold. Let's just call it that. Right. Now, those three things are interlinked. They don't exist independent of one another. But if you know them, you can actually estimate performance right and if you don't know them but you know performance you can reverse engineer the physiology it's so if we stick to the car analogy and we may as well if i'm standing on the side of the highway and a car comes by me and it's doing 350 kilometers an hour there's no way that that's a toyota prius not possible yeah because the engine isn't large enough the the, the car just doesn't have the hardware to do that performance same thing with cycling is if you if you're going to produce six and a half watts a kilogram for 45 minutes you have to have a certain vo2 max a certain efficiency and a certain threshold ability right. if you didn't have yeah. one or all of those three things you would not be capable of producing that power output yeah so with that in mind one can now start to look at contador and schleck and rasmussen okay that was a bit it was after rasmussen um, and then you get into Wiggins, Nibali, Froome, Bernal, and so on. And you say, all right, what are these guys doing? And what are the implications of that? The, the problem is you have to make assumptions, you know, because a cyclist efficiency is between 21 and 25%. Where do you set it? It makes a big difference if he's 25% versus 21. Is his lactate threshold, his ability to sustain a given percentage of max for 25 minutes could be 85%, it could be 95%. So where do you set it? So there was a whole bunch of us. There was a guy called Mike, Dr. Mike Pukovitz in, in the States. There's a Finnish analyst who does it. I was trying to do it. Veo was trying to do it. And we had a lot of fun actually doing it for five or six years. Mm. I was eventually asked to write a piece in the New York Times. And I remember the conclusion from that piece in 2011 was that the indications are that the Tour de France is slower than it was during the peak doping days of Pantani, Ulrich, Reese, Armstrong. So you could have, at that point, you could divide cycling up into unregulated, unmitigated doping in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Then you had a period of Armstrong where we know there was doping, but it was intelligent doping. Then there was the biological passport watershed where performances did slow down. There's no doubt that in the four or five years after the biological passport, they got slower. Mm. And then from 2012, it starts getting faster and faster again. And bringing us to this year's tour, the, the times we saw on the on the Parasord and yesterday on the Marie Blanc, or Sunday for those listening to it on Tuesday, <clears throat> were faster than anything that's been done in history. Now, cue debate. Because... If Walsh's argument is that you can catch a doper because he's producing power outputs that are so high and that others are saying, well, look, doping must be getting less because the speeds are getting lower. Well, then by the same logic, <laughs> the faster than ever performances mean what? Yeah, but there's lots of variables because it depends so, on whether that that effort from Pogachar, for instance, is a which it was um, on the Saturday at the Paris order, was a solo effort maximum the whole way, whereas if the – a group of riders are attacking each other and slowing down. It's, it's not a sustained effort, so there's, yeah. it's not a, not an absolute to suggest that a, a good time up a climb is necessarily no. suspicious. And 
And so that's why in the end, and in the end I stopped writing about this because yeah. so many people misunderstood the whole point of this exercise was, and I remember writing, please do not fall prey to what I called performance pixelation. You know, if you, if you ever go to the Louvre and you're facing the Mona Lisa, it's a tiny little thing on the wall. If you turn around, there's a much more impressive painting behind you. It's the wedding feast at Cana, I think. Mm. Have you been there? No. Anyway, it's massive. It's like water, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. It's big. What I'm saying is that if you stand five centimeters from that painting, you see nothing. There's no value in looking at a painting from five centimeters away. Right. Because all you can see is one blotch of paint, yes. one pixel on the screen. Yeah, this is a nice art analogy. <laughs> from cars to art. So what you have to do if you want to appreciate the whole thing is you have to take 10 steps back and look at it from afar. Mm. And then you can see the whole thing collectively. And what I was saying was, let's take a look at the whole thing from afar and not focus on the Contador climb of Verbier, not focus on the Rasmussen ascent of uh, the Tourmalet, or in that particular year, the, in 2010, I think it was Contador Schleck on the Tourmalet. Uh, let's not do that for Froome on Axtra Domain. Let's not do it for Pogacar and Roglic on Col Marie Blanc yesterday. But I think that you can collectively step back and say at the end of a tour and at the end of a generation, what are the patterns that we're seeing? And so that's where, it, that's where I think it starts to become valuable. But as you have correctly said, there are things that are changing other than doping, you know. So the, the race profile changes. Yeah. Maybe the Paris order has never been done on the fifth day of, of the tour, sixth day or whatever it was yeah. on the Tour de France. Slightly fresher. It's normally on the 15th day. And so, yeah. You've, yeah, so all these things start to factor in. So don't, don't get stuck on one performance. But you see, the cynic in me finds it difficult to break from what I'm seeing as a pattern. That's, yeah. And that's not targeted at one guy or anything. It's just... It's, it's just the whole thing. The whole sport just seems to still just be repeating a pattern. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, because you're looking at the stuff all the time, there's, there is always that temptation to look at the numbers and and to look at something, you know, I, I'd imagine if they did a time trial up the Tourmalet every year or every second year and then you worked out who got the best time of that Tourmalet, you could then track performances more absolutely rather than what you can do now when you're basing it on as time of the tour and also basing it on the tactics of the day and that sort of thing. So yeah. it is difficult. So, so there, is, there is no real way of testing. Or, I mean, we can suspect and we can certainly be cynical about it, but there's no proof based on a performance up a particular time. No, and that, that was there is, eventually my yeah. conclusion. And yeah. I mean, I remember writing that at the start was, mm. Can you spot a doper from performance? Well, no, of course not, yeah. because there are too many moving parts and too many factors. If if a guy rides seven watts a kilo for 45 minutes, I'm calling shenanigans on it 100% yeah. confidently. Yeah. If I know that his power was seven watts a kilogram yeah. for 45 minutes, it's it's physically impossible, physiologically impossible for that person to do it as a member of the human race. <laughs> so I'm calling him as an alien or a doper. Why do we know that? Because the combination of VO2 max and efficiency and ability to sustain lactate just does not exist in a human being at that level. Yeah. And that's, that's seven, eight watts a kilo. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Pogacar and Parasord uploads his Strava file, which is great, by the way. When we were doing this in 2009, 10, 11, yeah. we did not get power data from cyclists. Yeah. Now you're starting to, I think it's cool. It's great. I remember at the time we used to say like, one of the things to improve trust in cycling would be give people the power data. Yes. Because, People understood. I mean, people weren't stupid. They, okay, some are. <laughs> yeah. But people understand like what they're looking at if they're really passionate and interested in it. They'd, they'd be able to figure it out. So mm -hmm. give it to them instead of letting them guess it. 
plus or minus 4%. Because yeah. the plus 4% makes it look alien and the minus 4% makes it look normal. Mm. So why would you not give the guy accurate data if you think it's normal? Anyway, so so it's seven... At seven watts a kilo for six and a half, uh, for 45 minutes to an hour, it's just not possible. I mean, I, I can... What's Pogacar doing at Perisold, for instance? So that was, know, 25, that was 25 minutes at six and a half watts a kilo, if his mass on Strava is accurate. So it's 25 Because he's minutes. a relatively heavy guy, if you compare him to Yates and Bernal. Yeah, so he looks taller than, than many yeah. of them. I mean, Bernal's in the 50s, isn't he? Like, so, so, yeah, 59 yeah. or something, yeah. 52 actually. yeah. yeah. Um, Roglic and Pogacar are probably similar in mass. I would I'm going to look it up now on the Google Nets. Go for it. But I'll give you, let me give you an example of how this plays out. We'll do it for you. So your mass is? Um, um, <laughs> 95. Okay. 95. So Why did you have to ask me that? Well. <laughs> Can we just use a fictitious because, person like John? Because <laughs> in the name of transparency, we, we're not hiding anything from our listeners. Why can we use your weight? So, <laughs> Um, so then what we need to do is we need to say, right, what's your efficiency? Now we know that elite cyclists are 23 to 25. Lance Armstrong was measured in a famous paper by Coyle at 23.5%. Papers are published where they document some guys at 25 to 26% contentiously. Most of them are below 25, somewhere between 22 and 25. So I'll set you up at 22%, right? Let's right. just make that assumption. Now, we also know from your um, Strava rides and so on that your FTP, let's let's say at the moment is just for ease of calculation, two hundred and eighty watts, which is a shade under three watts a kilogram. Okay, that's about right. Yeah. Now, what that means at that efficiency, and assuming that you're working at that intensity for forty-five minutes, remember that's by definition what you would do for forty-five minutes to an hour is your critical power. Right. So, for listeners who haven't yet listened to our FTP one. Which is the same as critical power? FT, yeah, yeah, more or less, give or take. What I can hold for an hour. Yeah, and so that is your semi-steady state sustainable power output. Any harder than that, fatigue happens quickly. Mm -hmm. Any slower than that, you can go much longer distances. So it's kind of like your threshold sustainable power. What we'd work out for you is that at that power output, given where your energy is coming from and your efficiency, your VO2 at that moment would be 38 mils of oxygen per kilogram per minute. That's your VO2 at that power. Right. Now, if we assume Bloody impressive, eh? that you are capable <laughs> of, and this is a reasonable assumption for a, an amateur athlete, the pros obviously can go much higher than that. If we assume that you're capable of holding 75% of your max for an hour, which is a, let's I'd say it's reasonable. Yeah. Should be it predicts that. that your VO2 max would be 51 and I would take a fairly safe bet with you that if we were to go down the road here and test your VO2 max, you'd be within a couple of mils of that value. 51. Two years ago, it was 56. Two years ago. Yeah. Were you fitter then? or mm, Fitter now. Are I you? I think, yeah. Okay. But I'm older. True. Okay, only a couple of years. Yeah. So it would be interesting to check. Yeah. So if we take if we take Pogacar, sure. so 65 kilos. Okay, so here we go. I've got the numbers. Pogacar 66, Banana 60. Okay, so, so 66, we're going to see. So for Pogacar, we're assuming high efficiency. Right. Efficient, cycling efficiency is a big unknown, by the yeah. way, but we'll just assume 24%. We know that he averaged 428 watts on that parasaur climb. That gives him 6.5 watts per kilo. I mean, these are huge numbers. Yo. Unbelievable. <laughs> that predicts that at that moment, his VO2 at, on the parasaur would have been in the mid-70s, 76. Which is feasible. 
so he's riding it for 25 minutes. So if you assume that he can hold 95% for 25 minutes, his VO2 max would be 81. If you assume that he's riding at 90%, his VO2 max is 85. So yes, it is feasible. It's physiologically plausible. It's exceptionally high, but I mean, the guy's like winning the Tour de France. Obviously, yeah. it's going to be. You're not going <laughs> to be on the front of the yeah. Tour de France if you're mediocre. Sure. If if we were to make his VO2 max, five, uh, his power output 510, so now he's at 7.7. Now his predicted VO2 max is well over 100, or we have to make his efficiency like 30% in order for his VO2 max to look reasonable. That's why I said it's not plausible. Right. Does that make sense? So yeah. there comes a point at which you cross over into clearly unphysiological performances. Mm. They aren't there, but they are in a point where it's very gray. So if we if we had red, orange, and green, they're all orange. All orange, yeah. And so and so again, performance mm. alone does not does not tell you if someone is doping. That's the point we try to make all along. But the patterns and the yeah, there's there's lots of reasons to be cynical, and performance might be considered to be one of them. But mm. it's not it's not. If I'm a judge, and that's the evidence, I'm not reaching a guilty verdict. And I mean, in defence of cycling and cyclists, I mean nobody's going to go out and ride a stage of the Tour de France and hold back to try and make sure their numbers look right. I mean, if they, they and I'd imagine trying to take something that just gives you that added bonus just to keep you inside some sort of reasonable limit also is quite almost impossible to do so no, i mean it is what it is yeah. so, so like this, this no... is all this is all feasible yeah. but also gray yeah so there yeah. would have been 10 guys yesterday all within yeah 0.2 watts per kilogram one another so yeah so for, for context on alp d'huez which is the most famous climb perhaps written incredibly frequently so you've got a lot of data on alp d'huez the, the times of the 1990s and the early 2000s were regularly under 40 minutes. And that corresponds to 6 to 6.4 watts per kilogram for 40 minutes of riding. Right. Um, in the years after the passport, those performances slowed down. As I've said, they were outside 40 minutes for the first time in many years. And they were between 5.9 and 6.2 watts per kilogram for 40 minutes. So that would seem to me now on those long 40 plus minute climbs, the Tourmalade, Alpe d'Huez, um, Mont Ventoux would be another one like that. Mm. Six to 6.2 would be what I would expect is the limit for what it takes to win at the front of the Tour de France. If I'm seeing 6.5 for 45 minutes, that's gonna set alarm bells off, for, for sure. Um, it's not impossible, but it's highly improbable without yeah. some <laughs> assistance. Um, and yeah, so the tour the tour got slower and it's now gotten faster. And then you then you have bike technology, people will say, and there's lots of things people will argue have contributed to it. I I still think that if they it's such a pity that we didn't have accurate performance data going back to the mid nineties, because I think it would tell a story better than what we can tell with our estimations that we have if we're forced to make for fifteen years until now. So just give us a little bit of a, let's say there's armchair scientists that are out there want to kind of do some of the anorak work while they're watching the tour. Just just give us those, how you would work it out. Is there, is there, where can people go to sort of work out numbers? You can easily find out what somebody's weight is online and mm. figure it out. And would you, is there a resource you can point us to? Or there's a few a, websites. Or a sum you can do it with? If you know the power output and the weight, then mm. those you can look on Strava for lots of those. Yeah, and a lot of guys are uploading this. Yeah, I looked at but not their heart rates, ironically. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Um, yeah. 
So you need to know efficiency. And there's two assumptions, really. It's efficiency and percentage of maximum. Those are the really the only And efficiency is not really measurable, is it? It's, it's not measurable, accurate. It, well, it's not knowable. It's measurable if you've got the guy in a lab. Is there a number? Is there like his efficiency is nine bits? No, well, it's between, <laughs> it's between 21 and 25%. Okay. For an elite cyclist. That's of what's what? Been Efficiencies? No, that's, just, you... that's just the proportion of all your energy that's actually going into uh-huh. useful work. Okay, I'm with you. So there's so oh, really? much of it's lost to heat and, and so on, right? That's where, that's where the other 75% ah, okay. of it goes. So if you're riding into a headwind, you lose a lot of efficiency on environmental issues? Or no, not. so that's no, because the efficiency calculation is based on actual work done on okay. the bike. Okay. Then, <laughs> so it gets even more complex, <laughs> then the bike has to do work on the environment. Right. And that's where a headwind, so if you, if you didn't have a direct measure of power and you had to estimate it, a headwind would cause you to underestimate the power and a tailwind would cause you to overestimate it because yes. you'd be basing your performance on an artificially faster or slower Time, yes. depending on which direction the wind was coming and from. And if there's a big tailwind going up the parasaul. And that was that was one of the things that was now discussed. And and then <clears> with, <throat> even with Comtador in 209, you know, it was a tailwind on the Verbier. So mm. he climbed it 45 seconds faster. Therefore, by inference or implication rather, the power output would have been a little bit faster than it would mm. have been had they not. Actual power it. wouldn't have been. Actual power would have been the yeah. same, but it looks mm. faster because of the tailwind. So... It got it got dicey for all those reasons, and and like no one, you know, Mike and I and all the guys, we were open about these limitations. Yeah, because the reason you shouldn't look at one pixel, because one pixel, yeah, was subject to error, and the whole picture. Mike did some really cool stuff where he was comparing the doping era to the the non in theory non doped era and predicting what they do the climbs in before and seeing whether he was accurate and whether they're faster or not and it was it was a cool era and phase but it just got exhausting mm. because people just reacted to it as though you were saying the guy was so fast he must be doping and we're not in that range of performances yet we are close to it and and again, in the absence of any other context, you know, or, or in the absence of any other changes in cycling, I'm still skeptical. But it's not by itself the the smoking gun. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So is there such a thing as a forensic sports scientist? Well, there was for those it sounds years. like there could be. And then Brailsford and Brailsford called it pseudoscience and Wiggins called it something not repeatable on air. And that was the kind of stuff that was happening. You know, it was it was funny because we were just trying to have a discussion and other sports scientists, there's a French guy called Frederick Grappa who was getting involved. And then, as you know, Froome eventually got tested. Mm. Um, just I think he tested just before the Vuelta. And so we saw some of his physiology it didn't explain the transformation, but it was still interesting to see. And uh, Thibaut Pino used to publish his training performances and his race performances. I, and, I mean, I was a sucker for transparency. So I used to think if the guy was transparent, he must have less to hide. <laughs> yeah. This probably isn't the case. 
But uh, yeah, I, I think there is a place for it. And you know, I've got a colleague, a guy called Sergei Ilyukov, who's more into the running. He has documented running performances times in the Russian athletes before and after the whole Russian doping house of cards fell. And so he's shown that Russian doping was probably responsible for their performances in the early part of the 2000s. And then there's a watershed. The, the biological passport stuff I mentioned showed it the same way. So if you're systematic about it and you understand the limitations, I think that performance analysis does contribute to understanding doping, mm. but they weren't systematic about it and we weren't systematic enough about it and wasn't controlled enough. So it became maybe too much assumption-based and too distracting because now one outlier performance was offered yeah. without context and it became in the end quite tiring to do. You know, And I remember... Mm. I remember doing it with Nibali's performances. Same conclusion. He's deep in the in the gray or the orange. Um, he's very close to the human limits of performance. Not a peep. The moment you did it about a British cyclist, my goodness. <laughs> it, was, it was savage. <laughs> How dare you? Exactly. Now I wonder, British. like, if we did it about <laughs> Slovenians, I mean, I suppose they'd be upset. Yeah. But no one, no one in England's asking the question yeah. anymore. And nobody in Slovenia bothers or, about the English media. Or yeah, it's, it's yeah. quite funny to look at. I mean, and it was the yeah. same with in the 90s and 2000s with Lance. Like the American media were very protective. Yeah. And David Walsh and the French were being accused of being just hating on Americans. Yeah. And then it just changed. So the, the flag changes, but the conversation doesn't. Mm -hmm. The pattern repeats. Well, let's hope our cynicism isn't uh, clouding your enjoyment of our podcast today or your enjoyment of the rest of the tour. And um, we're going to move on from the cynicism a little bit and just talk a little bit about some of the some of the numbers around the sprint analysis. And that, this is an interesting place because it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about in terms of your, um, you know, your vertical ascent measurements or your VAMs. This is all about how fast you can go. And I think what's really fascinating about this discussion is comparing a guy like Alexander Kristoff, who is a fairly big chap, versus a, a sort of a, um, a, a relatively small um, sprinter um, like Caleb Ewan. Mm. Uh, They've obviously got to push out a huge amount of power, but I'm always quite surprised that a guy like Caleb Bune, I mean, he sort of squeezes in between people's you know, thighs. He's so small. But he, he has a it's, – it's it's very rare to see a small sprinter being so – where is it, actually? The more I think about it, I think about Cavendish and I think about some of the Australian, Robbie McHugh and all those kind of guys. I suppose they were all quite small. It feels like sprinting maybe doesn't have a body type. It has a muscle type. Yeah, there's right? a, this, uh, it's got, uh, let's say that there's an interaction. How's that for sitting on the fence? There's an yeah. interaction between body type and muscle. So I just changed my mind about something halfway through my first <laughs> sentence. So, so you can do whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, yeah, that's good. I mean, like you start exploring a thing and you suddenly realize actually the, the yeah. facts don't match my hypothesis. Yeah. And now my hypothesis has just changed. You midway think through and my sentence. All, yeah. You think like Tor Hushoft. I mean, Tor Hushoft yeah. looked, he was. Yeah. So, so, so obviously, at the extremes, what you've just said is true. So, like the track sprinter is a massive guy. They're big fellas, yeah. I mean, these are guys, and they are hitting two thousand watts. That's Do you know it. who's got the best power output in cycling? What what particular discipline? I saw a, a YouTube video about this the other day. BMXs. Oh yeah, the they start push of those out more watts than huge. any even the track cyclists because they need to push out three seconds of, and they're pushing out two thousand six hundred watts at the gate. At the gate, the first few seconds. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. 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 So that yeah, I have actually seen that. It's over two thousand. We had a, 
Our guy never won the Olympic medal, did he? Safisa and Klapo. South African. He, he didn't. was ranked top three going into the Olympics. Right. And he, he might have got injured anyway, I yeah. forget. But what I it does seeing... is it shows you think about the sprinters of the Tour de France being the power kings of cycling. No, no. But they're not even on the same no, ballpark they're, they're as the BMX. They're endurance athletes with the high end. That's Absolutely. what they are. And so, so, yeah, sprints are really interesting. So the one thing to start with is that there's, there's actually a very poor correlation between power output and finishing position in a sprint. Right? So in other words, the guy who produces the watts is mm. not always going to win. So for instance, across, and this is a study, so just context here, 2014, I attended a Tour de France conference in Leeds. I spoke at it and so did another guy called Paolo Manaspa, who's now head of performance solutions for Australian cycling. Lovely guy. Look him up. I think his uh, Twitter handle is Manaspa P, at Manaspa P. You can have a look for him. I don't know if he listens to this part, if he does, hey, Paolo. So I spoke to him after his um, talk. I said, that was really interesting because he presented a whole analysis of the sprint, which is, yeah, we discuss climbing yeah. all the time, but no one yeah. really looks at the sprint. And they did. And they found a bunch of sprinters and they tracked them over like two or three years. And they looked at the sprints where these guys finished in the top five. So successful sprints. Obviously winning it is <laughs> successful. Who came second on stage one? Yeah. Um and what, and what they found is that sometimes the guy winning it produces 1,400 watts. Other times the guy at 1,400 watts comes third. And the guy who won the sprint produced 1,100 watts. So what does that tell you? It tells you that there's a significant contribution of aerodynamics. And there's a significant contribution of tactical nous to the sprint. Because yeah. those 1,400 watts could have come 90 meters from the finish line. And that was the wrong time to apply that power. Whereas the 1,100 might have been just at the right time. So that's really interesting. So average power in the sprint in this study, 1,250, right. ranging from 980 all the way to 1,500. Right. With no relationship between power and finishing position, which tells you that the ability to get speed out of a given power is maybe the key thing. And well, what about power versus uh, a person's size? Per person's weight. Yeah. So, and their size is going to influence in part their aerodynamic frontal surface area. Because yeah. we're assuming a sprint's on a flat road, so you're not having to work against gravity. Mm -hmm. So really the contribution of size is how quickly can you accelerate, but they're, you know, they're accelerating from 60 to 68, <laughs> 73. Yes. They're not doing it standstill. Yeah, yeah, so it's not really a standing, so it's not really a Newton's law of <laughs> right. motion thing. It is, but not quite yeah. quite yeah. like that. So it's the it's the head down, shoulders down position. That's communication from David Martin, who's also a physiologist who studied this, as typified by Cavendish, you know, that famous low position, chins on front of the handlebar, and his, his shoulders are basically at the height of his handlebars. Mm. So, so it's that's very difficult a, to sprint like that. So it's a proper skill. Yeah, and that, and that that's similar to what Caleb Ewan was producing yeah. in that in that particular sprint. So those are the so those are the elements. It's the tactical positioning, it's the timing of the sprint, it's your ability to produce power, and it's the ability to turn power into speed as a consequence of being less uh, wind resistant <laughs> yeah. or lowering your aerodynamic drag. And then of course, if you can if you can produce the same power at sixty eight kilograms compared to seventy eight that's going to help you because your size is smaller. But it's, for the most part, it's a function of power and aerodynamics. Yeah. Not necessarily just mass per se.
Yeah, I mean, if you watch, I mean, the Caleb Ewan, when he won the stage in this first week, I can't remember what stage it was, I think three or might even be one, I can't remember now. But, I mean, he came literally from nowhere yeah. through a gap that didn't exist. Well, he slalomed. It was a, it yeah, was a remarkable incredible. skill. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. It's one of those things when you watch sprinting, I never used to enjoy the sprint stages because I always felt they weren't as dramatic as watching the climbs. But there's no doubt that I've learned to enjoy them probably as much as I enjoyed the stages because you just see the tactical nuance. And the, I always am amazed by how some teams dedicate so many resources to being in the front of the bunch with 5Ks to go. And then suddenly that team's gone in the last kilometre and some other team's in the front. So is, is, there's chance involved in that, I imagine. There's skill, there's... There's a fair amount of luck, I, w- I would imagine, just trying to win a stage because, you know, probably the top five in the world on a good day could win at any stage, but they just yeah, get lucky. Though it is the top five. So so one of the interesting things in that study was, um, and I just want to find it so that I don't quote it incorrectly to you, quite a remarkable stat is that, um, I just want to find it for you because it, I was blown away by it. And this is obviously dated a little bit now. It might, mm. The names might have changed, but this was in the... This is from about 2009 to 2013. 79 stages finished in a sprint and 54 of them were shared between five sprinters. So there is a very select group of people who A, can and B, choose to try and contest those stage finishes. Um, And then, but then there is luck. I mean, we saw the other day, like Sagan gets a bump, he drops the chain, Mm. Alaphilippe gets bumped and then that's... Because at that speed, like the slightest loss of momentum, and you you passed by six people within twenty mm. meters. So that's incredible. Um, <laughs> the, the, the what I've always found with the sprint is they're frantic. It's very difficult to know what you're watching. Yeah. But the post analysis of the sprint really like makes them very yeah. interesting. And where the coverage I think has become quite good is they now have that little digital thing where they actually from the aerial shot overlay. Yeah. Here's Sagan. Here's you. And here's mm. uh, Vart van Art or whatever it is. Mm. And it, that certainly makes it a lot more mm. uh, relatable and you mm. can appreciate it much more. So mm. I'm like you, I'm becoming more fond of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah no, then, it is interesting. And then when you see, I mean, you see the, it doesn't look risky, but then when you see the consequences of mistakes. <laughs> so, I mean, this wasn't the Tour de France, but the but the crash that, oh, what's the guy's name? Is Gr- Grunefeld was the yeah. guy who, who bumped him. Um, that wasn't Grunewegen. Grunewegen was the one that he, he was the culprit, quote yeah, unquote. He bumped um, the guy and he hit the sideboards in Poland, uh, was it? All the uh, tour of Poland, I think. Was was like, all oh, the cycling well, fans are going to go. I know who he yeah. is. Oh, anyway, we'll, you see, this is we'll call it. But I mean, cheapers. You see that? I remember the. Do you remember the crash of J- Jamaluddin Abdujabarov on well, the Champs Elysees, where the photographer, uh, the policeman, leaned out yeah. and oh, and he hit a coke the the, the coke. A can, well, it wasn't an actual can. It was kind of a a, a Coke symbol on the side of it, and he hit it extremely oh, hard. I mean, they just—it's just like metal and bodies, eh? I was just going to say, my favourite name in cycling is Jamology Nebjajaprov. Eighties, eighties, nineties, because I remember yeah. him, and I really only got into cycling like ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. So he was the original superstar with Cipollini. And I mean, you remember? You yeah. look at that footage, and they weren't even wearing helmets. Yeah, it's not so. Wow. So it's. Crazy. I mean, I was watching actually, even in the in the tour coverage now, they show flashbacks and they showed the other day Ulrich and um, who was it who held off to win the win the race? It was a French cyclist. Uh, I forget the guy's name. Lauren Broussard, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And they finished down this climb. And I mean, no helmets. Yeah. <laughs> they go, not, not even on the descents. This is controversial is, though, but I, I still, I know that, Everybody involved in cycling will probably shoot me down as editor of bicycle. I shouldn't be saying this, but I would be interested to know how 
how helmets do, I remember this is a podcast somewhere down the line about do helmets actually make that much difference? I mean, I, yes, of course, if you fell on your head and you haven't got a helmet on, you're likely to injure yourself. But how many yeah. people, you know, you look at those pros, yes, people die, Cassatelli died. You know, there has been a number of deaths that probably could have prevented from helmets. But I suppose there's no harm in wearing them, so why not wear them, I guess? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's the downside is camera, camera friendliness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still think they should be able to not wear them on the hills, but anyway. I suppose Fabio, it makes it difficult. Fabio Jacobson. Jacobson. There we go. Fabio Jacobson. Anyway, Dylan Gronewagen was the, was the guy who, who bumped him mm. to, to the right and he hit the boards and they just came apart and he went into a spectator and I, I don't even know what the status of those people is now with i'll look it up at the end of this but yeah but yeah uh so yeah helmets I mean, that was they they were criticized because of the state of the of the boards along the finishing straight mm. particularly on the tour that they weren't um upright boards they were slightly um leaned over so when he hit them he just took them out and they didn't have enough structure to them and mm. of course the tour de france those boards are literally straight up and they they can actually you can hit those boards at a fair amount of speed and they won't fall apart mm. so protecting the spectators mainly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah so helmets um uh, yeah, I'll I'll say that if <laughs> in the event that a guy falls and he's going to hit his head on the ground, I mean, skull fracture is yeah. They'll prevent that. For sure. They don't prevent concussions. You know, we have this debate in rugby all the time. Like, mm. should they wear headgear? Well, they don't prevent that. And there's interesting data actually that you get more risk-taking behavior when you wear them than without. Mm. And I've seen similar things from cycling. I I don't know if it's a legit thing or if it was just a theory, but someone was saying that. A cyclist with a helmet will take a risk causing an accident, whereas a cyclist without one will be more cautious. And so what you gain from the helmet, you might actually lose mm. from the risk-taking behaviors. And I, I don't know if that's ever been studied mm. um, systematically. There's all these new technologies in helmets now, the MIPS technology, which is a helmet within a helmet. So supposedly that is meant to counteract the, the, the idea that you can get concussion because it sort of absorbs the shock. Yeah, and the inside yeah. of the helmet, but yeah. Maybe Who very knows, it's good marketing. There's a talk, there's a talk yeah. by a neuroscience guy from I think Stanford. It's a TEDx talk. Mm. You can look it up, TEDx helmets concussion, you'll find it. Mm. And he's got a video in there. This will never take on, but it's basically like a neck thing that you wear. <laughs> and it's an airbag. Have you I've seen, seen it? That. And like so they've got this video of the guy <laughs> and he hits he hits a curb or something and he goes over the front. He's over the front of the handlebars, and as he launches, some accelerometer thing mobilizes this, yeah. activates this yeah. thing, and he lands on what's basically a little airbag helmet. It looks yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, oh, they I should mean, make, just make a whole body one, just full, yeah. and you can roll down a hill whenever you feel like it. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so uh, I, I can't, I can't complain about the helmet. Yeah. So I think it's necessary. Okay, so now. The big thing we're going to be talking about, and I always hate doing this because in a couple of weeks' time we might be shot down for knowing nothing about anything. But let's just talk about some of the predictions now because obviously there are some big stages to come. We will probably do a wrap-up of the tour in the next couple of weeks, and we hope that it will continue the time of listening to this podcast. Hopefully you will be watching the next stage. But it looks to me, just based on the stuff that we've seen, there is a there is a, a youngster by the name of Tadej Pogacar who's going to be a big threat to the overall contenders. My contention is that he is probably the biggest threat to Roglic, but I think that Bernal, with experience, will probably get stronger. Uh, and Roglic still, I think, still sits there as the favourite based on the fact that he has the strongest team and looks the most composed. Yeah, I think that for Roglic to not be the favourite, you've got to place a bet that something's going to change. Yeah. Um, his form 
has to drop or Bernal has to get much better. I can't see, it's difficult to see Pogacar being much better in week three than he is now. At best, he stays at this level. Yeah. Which means that if Roglic doesn't drop his level, Roglic wins the tour. Yeah. And if Bernal can't raise his level, Roglic wins the tour. So, Bernal needs to take some time up in the climbs. Yeah. And he, needs and he might, because now we head obviously to the Alps and they don't have the massive Alp days where they hit two and a half thousand meters and so on like usual, but they do have some pretty high days in the Alps. We haven't seen a 2,000-meter climb in this tour so far, and that can play a role, right? Because mm. with altitude, performance capacity drops because your VO2 max drops by, I think, 1% for every 100 meters that you go up. Um, and so what you see in the relatively mid-altitude Pyrenean climbs sometimes looks a little bit different when mm. you start getting into the very thin air of the Alps. So that's interesting. And you know Bernal is the Colombians at the altitude birth, yeah. uh, not just birth, altitude ancestry. Yeah, There's good reason in physiology to think that being third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation at altitude is different from being sea level who trains at altitude. So that that's, a, that's an unknown, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, Bernal, after Saturday... I, th- I saw Quintana and I'm like, oh, this is cool. The guy looks actually very sharp. He yeah. covered um, the moves very well. He threw an attack of his own, which is like once every five years that Quintana f- feels like he attacks in the tour. <laughs> he's, very, he's, he's just, he, I've always waited for Quintana to be a little, little more aggressive. And Saturday did it. And then Pogacar shut him down real quick. But still, this is good. Then yesterday he couldn't follow the moves. So yeah. is he going... You know, it's, so what's so interesting is like there's trajectories. Who's on an upward and who's on a downward and who's yeah. holding? Yeah, yeah. Roglic seems to me to be holding. Yes. And the concern is that he's been holding since racing started post-COVID, which was when was that? I mean, that was in early July. No, mm. late July. Yeah, he won the Slovakian championships and beat Pogacar actually uh, in those championships, didn't he? Pogacar beat him in the time trial. I know that Yes, much. but he won the road race. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. I thought he beat them in the time so, trial So as they're well. very well matched, those yeah, two, yeah. Which, which tells you that maybe people who didn't look at Pogacar were maybe discounting the guy a little. But but Bernal, I think, is yesterday suggests to me that Bernal's on an up because he looked better yesterday than yep. he'd looked in, in the previous days, for sure. And... Uh, Having gone through like the the back issues, I mean, with time, is that going to get better? Is he the guy who's going to be? But I, I think Roglic hangs on just enough. And I also think because the final key decisive day in the Tour is a time trial, it's an uphill time trial. Yeah. But I still think Roglic has a slight time trialing advantage over Bernal. So unless Pogacar can do something, I still I still see going Roglic, Bernal, Pogacar by the podium in Paris. I want to stick my neck out, and I'm going to say I'm going to I'm going to say Pogacar for the win, because I think he can time trial as well, and I think it'll suit him. I think he'll beat Roglic in the time trial on the uphill time trial, but we'll see. We'll the thing, see. The, the, the thing for Pogacar, <laughs> the concern would be like Thursday he lost the time, he lost the yeah. group at the front, and he and doesn't have the a, team either. Same yeah. level. So it was a it was a apparently a puncture, and he just come on at the back of the front. That's when the split happened, and he couldn't make the the first group. Mm. But then he worked hell of a hard. The report was that he was pulling on the front of that second chase group so hard, more than anyone else. Yeah. Th- so that's a hard day Thursday, was it? Yeah, but he was strong. Then for Saturday, he's doing, I mean, the hardest ride he's probably done. He's attacking on the parasword. Then on Sunday, he's doing another incredibly, like, how many matches yeah. can you burn <laughs> before you have a bad day? So that's the concern is that he's, 
Because they always used to say, you know, spend your effort, like four big efforts in the Tour de France. I don't know who said it on Twitter, but there was a great tweet that I saw on my feed uh, today. It says, um, uh, Pogacar has burnt one of his 1,813 matches again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and maybe knows? that's the maybe case. Maybe that happens. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. you never know. Like rest days, there's a big potentially crosswind day tomorrow on the, yeah. on the coast, and, and maybe maybe the whole race gets turned on its head because mm. someone loses time. Does does Jumbo have the ability to, to set the pace and to hold the race, mm. um, <laughs> put a noose around the racer's neck? <laughs> By the way, physiologically, can we just talk about what they're doing Let's there? do it. That's why we do this podcast. Um <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm referring back to our What the FTP show that we did. The top 20 or 30 cyclists in the world are fairly similarly matched. I mean, not identical, obviously, otherwise it would be a dead heat every race, but fairly similarly matched in terms of what they are able to do for 30 to 60 minutes. That's called CP, FTP, MLSS. They vary slightly, but that's what it is. What, what Jumbo are doing when they have Gessink on the front for 2K, then vote for Artex over for 3K, then in theory it's Bennett or Seb Kuss doing it for 2 or 3K, yeah. is they are riding at a pace that puts the entire group, the front group, pretty much on or just below that MLSS power output. So if, if uh, Quintana and Bernal could do, you said Bernal was 60Ks. 60, yeah. So let's say Bernal can do 380 watts for 30 minutes. That's his limit. They want him to be riding at 370, 380 watts for those first five or six K of a climb. Because what that's doing for Bernal is he's so close to his critical power that if he tried to attack, he would now be in that anaerobic component of his work capacity, mm. the, the so-called W prime. So now he starts to use his battery up. And so they're saying, okay, fine, go for it. If you want to go for it with this temper, that's fine, but we know that it's not sustainable for you. We're placing that bet. We don't know it. We're placing a bet. And so if you go, we'll just nudge it up one or two percent because you cannot sustain four hundred. We that's that's our that's our play here. The same thing for Quintana. They're saying you can ride three eighty. We accept that, but you cannot go to four hundred. Yeah. Because now you're going to start going above CP power output wise. The moment you're above CP, you have to access energy from other sources, and that leads to rapid fatigue. And so that's basically what they're doing. They're strangling the race. It's the same method of Postal. It's the same method of Sky, and it's now the method of uh, of Jumbo Lisma. Interesting one on that one is where Adam Yates is riding at the moment, isn't right. he? Because he's, he's kind of just almost time-trialing himself up climbs and not responding to any of the and, racing. And there's always one. So Yates was a great example Saturday. Yesterday, it was just too much for him. I think he, I just don't think he had the condition to race for mm. yellow. Richie Port yesterday was your example of that because there's always one, by the way, watch this listeners, you always see one guy drop off when there's an attack and two minutes later, he's back. Mm. Then there's a counterattack, he drops off, he comes back. Yeah. He and does that a lot. And that's your barometer for mm. what's actually happening. So. That guy, is, he's not riding steady pace, but he's probably riding at his critical power plus or minus 2%. So 400 watts plus or minus 10 watts, let's, let's say, for argument's sake, right? Yeah. Um, what, what, what Pogacar, what Roglic, what Quintana and Bernal are doing is they're going 400 to 450 for a short time. I mean, Pogacar's attacks were 700 watts yeah. for 10 seconds, then we settle back down. Then we go up again, and then we come back down. And so their power variation is much more volatile than Yates or Port or yesterday Bardet did it, where he, he mm -hmm. lost 
the first move and then he comes back to it because whether by physiolo physiological design or choice, <laughs> they don't have the capacity to pick it up by 30% for a short time because they're mm -hmm. w, they don't want to access that battery and that W prime. So, so there's always one who tells you that. So if you, if you want to gauge what the top guys are doing, look at what the fifth, sixth, and seventh guy is doing because he, he kind of, he kind of re, he gives you the context for what's happening at the front. I mean, you see those guys coming back. That's probably the overall average speed that those guys are going. I mean, Dumoulin's probably quite a good example of somebody who rides at climb fairly consistently, although he's now a domestique. Norm at the normally, yes. But like in this race, <laughs> yeah. he's actually been thrown out there to just like yeah. hammer it. And it was interesting. One Incredible. of the first cyclists who ever made his power output data available, I remember it because back in the day when we were doing this, we were so hungry for actual files, was Chris Anker Sorensen. And mm. he was riding for Andy Schleck. And I remember on that, was it the Tormelay? I think it was the Tormelay. He hits the first 21 minutes at 6.6 .6 watts a kilo, which is huge numbers. Yeah. And then he pops off and he just, you know, you've seen them. They just peel off to the side mm. and they- And they can hardly pedal. And they hardly pedal and they just cruise up, which for them is cruising. For us, it's like yeah. still way beyond max. <laughs> um, but what's really interesting is that the overall pace slows down when he drops off. Yes. So, so the hardest part of the climb is the bit that's being led out by the team. And then right. once that goes, now it becomes much more stochastic because it's 750 watts for 10 seconds from Pogachar. The moment they're on his wheel, we drop it down to 280 watts for another 20, 30 seconds. And so you get this yo-yoing of power output. Meanwhile, mm. Bardet, Yates, Port, they're not playing the 700, 200 game. They're playing a 400 game. Yeah. And so they actually reveal to you what's actually happening with the top guys. So they're always useful to watch. I, I know that we were going to talk about this pre-podcast. I know that we're going to get to it today, and it's something we can look at uh, potentially for podcast after the tour. But I'm always fascinated by the idea of your, your mind or, your, or the motivation being able to overcome some of the physiology. I mean, we look at the performances. If we look at a guy like Yates and, and Richie Port and those kind of guys, and you say they know what they can go up a climb at a certain speed, they know that the average, well, the average, the, all the riders that are in a similar category, they know what they can do. They know if somebody goes off the run, they're going to come back to some extent. How much can be somebody be motivated to overstep that physiology that surprises everybody? Um, I don't know whether there's a quick answer to that, but that, that's always a good question. Pogacar is clearly a guy who's got a lot of desire, a lot of mm. passion, and I wonder how much that would help him overcome some of the physiological limits that are there. Yeah. If they are overcomable. The corollary is that if you're not motivated, then you don't access your physiological capacity. That's obvious, I would hope. Mm. Does it necessarily follow that a highly motivated guy can go beyond physiological capacity? No, because that's not truly capacity then. So the, the physiological capacity is set. But you and I have good days on a bike. I had a terrible day on Friday. I wasn't feeling great. I didn't ride particularly well. Yeah, but yesterday but, but I had a good day. Yeah, so, so like the physiological capacity might vary from one day to the next. Mm. But I still don't think that on any given day, in any given context, motivation can override it. It's the same thing. I've always said, like, nobody in history has ever successfully committed suicide holding their breath. <laughs> doesn't matter how badly you want to go. Yeah. The body has a failsafe that will stop you from that stupidity before you can succeed. And it's the same. Like, there, there is a limit imposed by physiology that no degree of motivation can overcome. So yesterday when Hershey summits with 13 seconds 
and he then grows that lead on the descent because he's taking all kinds of risks that the favorites aren't. Mm. That lead is, what was it, 28, I think, 27 seconds at most? Yeah. With five, four, five K to go. Yeah. Then the road flattens out and maybe tilts slightly up. And mm. suddenly now he has to find physiology that he just doesn't have at the end of a long, hard day. And that lead starts coming down and down and down. You can't tell me with four Ks to go that that guy's not as motivated as a, as a human being has ever been to stay ahead of the group but he couldn't do it. Or demoralized by the fact that he's got the best riders behind him. <laughs> I'm trying to get but, it. Yeah, but if he could yeah. have found three seconds a kilometer more, yeah. he would have stayed away, but he couldn't. And, you know, and <laughs> the Tour de France always it's throws so cases many. like these up. So yeah. Philippe last year finds himself in yellow. Everyone's like, it's cool. It's a little bit of French excitement. He wins the time trial. Like, whoa, yeah. where did that come from? He's not getting dropped on the climbs. Then he does get dropped and he loses, I can't remember, a minute, 38 yeah. seconds, whatever it was. And the closer you get to Paris, the more people are going, can this guy, and he's digging so deep and eventually he just can't dig any deeper. He's struck, he strikes the bottom of his own physiological reserve and he loses the time and ends up, you know, not out of, out of the yellow. Thomas if he Berkler, wasn't in yellow though, would he have been staying on those climbs no, he wouldn't have had the incentive to so then no, i think it's well, a conscious choice yeah like true. he's gonna say actually why would i spend everything i've got when i could actually save myself and try and sneak a stage or two which is what he's doing now yeah, which yeah. is what he's doing yeah. now um so 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 ella philippe now is losing i don't know 12 minutes on a climb mm. normally he'd lose five three but he's 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 accepted yeah. that he's going to lose he might as well lose 12 because yeah. 3 or 12 is not going to be different. But 12 gives him a chance of sneaking a stage. Yeah. Right? So uh, I remember 2004, I was actually in France for this tour watching it. Thomas Werkler got in a break and they had, I, th I think the break finished 12 minutes ahead of the, yeah. the chasing group. The tongue of cycling. That's right. And so he had a 10-minute lead on Armstrong going into the last two weeks of the tour. And he was riding so far above what anyone thought Thomas Wickler was capable of because of that yellow jersey. So, yeah, you get with the right incentives and the right motivation, a guy will find something that even he probably didn't realize he had. That's my question. I and mean, we all did it on a podcast. So, Is there something there? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But in the end, Wickler's physiology still stopped him because no amount of motivation is going to allow him to hold off like the, mm. the better physiology of the guys who are hunting him down. Mm. So... So it's both. So, and, and you know what the problem is with the whole motivation thing is that then you get arguments like someone just wanted it more. Like Lance just wanted I remember people used to say that in the American media, like Lance just wanted it more. Ulrich would have been a great cyclist if he was motivated. Well, how disrespectful to think that Ulrich didn't want it. Of mm. course he did. He just didn't have the hardware <laughs> and the software to to get it. So and a slightly gooey way. So my, my theory on that was always like, among the top 10 guys in the world who are legitimate contenders for the Tour de France over the course of three weeks, the assumption has to be that they're all equally motivated. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. how else? But is, it is an assumption, isn't it? Because maybe they're not all equally motivated. Not maybe every single day. Not every things. single day, for sure. Yeah. So, so uh, French cyclists often go out in the attack on Bastille Day. Yeah. Because it's a motivation thing for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, a guy, you know, we've had tragedies in the tour where a teammate has died and then someone's gone out the next day and yeah. he's, now he's motivated by something bigger than just prize mm. money and a, mm. and a bouquet of flowers at the mm. finish line. So, yeah, of course it makes a difference. But all that's doing is putting him closer to his physiological capacity. You, you can't break. So, so, like, let's imagine there's a concrete ceiling 
and then there are three or four glass ceilings beneath it. You can yes. get through those glass ceilings because of tactics, incentives, and motivation, but eventually you bump up against an unbreakable one. That's probably the shortest summary I can give you to that. Well, one. I think what you just said there is probably the right way to look at it. It's that motivation pushes you closer to your physiological capacity, yeah. but you can't overstep it. But no. I imagine there's there's that no. space underneath. And so, and one of we the things we must get a sports psychologist on. I think about it. we just need to talk to someone a who, sports psychologist about this. Someone who really understands it would be fascinating. Yeah, you know, an athlete who's become a sports psychologist yeah, yeah, for would sure. be great. Because one of the things that um, so, so I believe that you need obviously to have a there's a minimum requirement for hardware and software, i.e., muscles, heart, lungs, and then software brain, mm. and then there's a minimum requirement for psychology and emotion, which is part of where yeah. motivation falls in there. Sure. And if you're lacking in any of them, then of course you are never going to successfully yeah. achieve because you might be highly motivated, but you just don't have the hardware, or you might have all the hardware in the world and you're not motivated. But these these things of like where it's one or the other. Of course, then it can never. It's never going to be one or the other. Mm. False dichotomy of note. Um, and in the end, the guy who wins is 100% motivated and 100% physiologically mm. capable. And he's the one who's realized his physiological capacity the most mm. through his psychological mm. application. I suppose it also only applies to cycling. Not all sports are the same because there is a big mental aspect to different sports yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean imagine imagine Tennis. playing this to golf i mean yeah. golf you choke you choke on a putt and you yeah. you go That's from first to 50th if you, yeah. if you miss three putts a day That's right. so um yeah so so in the end i think marathon running cycling swimming mm. probably uh mm. swimming's a really interesting one because you get relay performances where guys produce in relays what they never produce yes every olympics throws up a relay hero for someone, whether it's France, Australia, or USA, or whatever, a guy who in a four by 100 just swims the sort of performance that make you go, wow, that guy's going to win the gold. Yeah. And he comes to the individual, he comes eighth. Yeah. And like, and he's a second slower. Like, why? Yeah. Well, because he, he's the relay meant something. more to him. So yeah, yeah. this is, I'm not, so sorry, please don't, listeners, don't assume that I'm downplaying the role of motivation. It's clearly mm -hmm. important. Obviously, it, it is. It's it's like if you don't have well, it. You started downplaying it. Now you've upplayed it. No, no. If you don't have it, you're not winning. And I still maintain yeah. that in the end. So so here. Okay. So here's the thing. This is a non-answer. Um, <laughs> As according to a sports scientist, <laughs> uh, if physiology is equal, motivation wins. If motivation is equal, physiology wins. Obviously. Right. Now the problem is with two moving parts. How do you weight them? Yeah. You can't. So. It's the holy grail of sports science. Right. It is to some extent. But mm. Thomas Verkler and Philippe had all the motivation in the world. They still weren't going to win. Yes. Because true. they lacked so much on the other side that they could not make up for it. Mm. Within themselves, they could exceed their own capacities or own thought of capacities. Yeah. But they broke three glass ceilings and eventually they ran into a concrete one. Well, I'm sure we'll see many uh, fantastic and surprising and out-of-this-world performances over the next two weeks if the tour goes ahead, and I hope that it does. Uh, it has been an absolutely fascinating discussion today, and I hope you've enjoyed our podcast. We will certainly do a post-Tour de France podcast. Um, we haven't even decided to do that, but I'm just saying that now because we will definitely do one because I think it is a fascinating subject and something that Ross and I feel very passionate about as well. If you wanted, let us know about what you think about your predictions. Send us a message on Twitter. 
We are at Sports SciPod. We're also on Instagram as uh, Science of Sport Podcast, and you can uh, either put your predictions on there and uh, let us know what you think. You can even rubbish our predictions if you want. Um, I probably I will probably be wrong. So just remind fine. us what yes. your podium was. My podium. I didn't. I didn't give you a podium, but I will now. I'll give you Pogacar, Bernal, Roglic. Okay. As my top so it's three, the same three people, but the except order's the order is different. So I'm putting it out there, but please feel free, anybody on Twitter land, if you want to give us your predictions, uh, feel free to do that. We will take a screenshot of the best ones, and whoever does get the right order, whether it's I mean, tell you what, what you should do is either support Ross and I. Tell us what you think. Whether, <laughs> whether you support Ross and I, and, and also give us your views. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next uh, couple of weeks for a next wrap-up of uh, the Tour de France and uh, keep the comments coming, whether it's on this podcast or any of our previous podcasts this year or the ones that have gone past. But the good news is, I mean, I think we could probably announce this today, um, is that as of yesterday, we did 500,000 listens of our podcast in the last 18 months. So a massive thank you to all of our listeners. A bit of a milestone. What they say about the first million? What's that? Someone once said the first <laughs> got to a million Twitter followers. Some celebrity rap artist said the first million's the, the hardest. And then someone replied and said the first 10 million's way harder. <laughs> so well, there the we first 500,000 is the hardest. Exactly. We'll let you know when we get to 5 million. When we get to 5 million, we'll really crow about it. But thank you to all of our listeners. But from us, it's goodbye and we'll speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. 